The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the Law Offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. Sue Kalinske is off today. Andy Kamenitsky is going to fill in. Andy, how you doing? Good, man. Happy to be here. So for people that uh, that don't listen to 710 ESPN, who don't watch the uh, the Locked On Lakers show, describe who you are in the in the world. Um, I am a longtime member of L.A. sports media. I've worked everywhere from ESPN, including with you. That's where we met. The L.A. Times, The Athletic, I've covered pretty much every sport, but mainly the NBA and the Lakers. As you mentioned, uh, I have a podcast for part of the Locked On Network called Locked On Lakers. Uh, it's available five days a week, Steve, anywhere you get your podcast. Is there a YouTube component? There is a YouTube component. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, we just passed the 15,000 mark for subscribers, so we're really stoked about that. It's a good time to be following the Lakers. But um, as you also know, I am a really big TV and movie and music geek. Yes. And, when, and when we do shows together, you've probably picked up on this. I get more excited talking about that stuff than the sports. That's why you were my first choice to fill in Thank for you. Sue, because I know you you know your stuff. By the way, Jake Busey is going to join us, the actor, uh, in just a minute here. Uh, so you also did some work at, I, I don't, it's not NPR, it's uh, KPCC. KPCC, yeah. And you worked with uh, a mild friend, your friend, A. Martinez, who's now at NPR, did you play some role in him being elevated to that uh, to that point? Well, that's certainly the role you played in elevating A, period. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners how A. Martinez became known as A? Uh, it's a very good question. So uh, back when A was an intern on the Mason and Ireland show back in the late 90s, um, I don't necessarily have the best facility for remembering names, I've got what Brad Pitt has. It's called, well, it's like facial blindness. They call it <laughs> facial blindness. So I don't always remember people's names. So A. Martinez actually came from me yelling, hey, Martinez. Uh, and at, in those days, it was uh, uh, turn the turn the audio board up or uh, I'm afraid to say get get me a coffee. Hey, Martinez is the origin of that name. And it's always amazed me that he's run with that ever since. Yeah, well, I mean, it's catchy. You know, he goes by A. Martinez. I've known A for like 20 something years. I just realized I'm blanking on his actual name. I, I have forgotten what A's name is. It is George. Thank you. It's George Martinez. But yes. he, I think he discovered a, you know, a more striking professional name than George Martinez, A. Martinez, particularly, you didn't know this at the time, but if you're eventually going to go the NPR route, Initial dot last name is super NPR. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> like uh, so. So we're going to talk to Jake Busey here in a minute. But we were just talking a little bit off the air about uh, director Paul Verhoeven, 
mm-hmm. uh, who has got, he directed Starship Troopers. We'll talk about that with Jake because it's a, an all time cult classic, but he's a very sort of out there director. When I looked at his IMDb page, it went basic instinct, which is a great, great movie, uh, on to showgirls, which is a deliciously campy movie to Starship Troopers, which is kind of campy in its own sort of way, this sort of old school sci-fi way. He's a really interesting director. Yeah, I mean, if there's such a thing as making a campy uh, a campy movie about authoritarianism, that would be Starship. Yeah, Trooper. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Is campy it, the wrong word there? What, no, what, what no, actually, mean? I think it's the right word. That's what yeah. makes the movie so interesting is that it is campy, but it is also making a statement on authoritarianism. Before also Basic Instinct, you had RoboCop and Total Recall. Come on. Yeah, I mean, he's he's had a really interesting career for a director that I th- I think is starting to gain kind of more respect in hindsight. Because at the time, I think a lot of his movies were considered either just sort of mindless commercial or schlock. Yes. And I think now people are starting to catch up on, well, you know, he was doing some pretty interesting out there stuff. So I remember I was doing the Tom Snyder show when Showgirls came out. And Robert Davi, who likes to go by Bobby, Bobby Davi, Mm-hmm. Uh, came on the show and he said that the interesting thing about that movie is that everybody knew it was camp except for Elizabeth Berkeley, who was playing it straight. And that's one of the reasons why the movie works so well is that she's sort of not in on the joke. Yeah. And look, uh, there's a part of me that feels for Elizabeth Berkeley there because this really was supposed to be her big break. Yes. Like everybody else in the movie, um, you know, like for example, um, what's her name now? I'm blanking on her name. Uh, she's in, um, she's in face off, G- uh, Gina Gershon. Gina Gershon. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, other people in the movie. They had established themselves more. They were like working supporting actors. You know, they they didn't need this as much as Elizabeth Berkeley. Elizabeth Berkeley was put in the unfortunate position of having to show her chops. Yes, in, in yes. this movie, and that that's. I think over time she's come to just have fun with it. But in the moment, that thing was humiliating for. Her. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I remember actually, I had a little, uh, Twitter fight with Elizabeth Berkeley oh, at some I point about that, where I said that ended somebody's career faster than showgirls did to Elizabeth Berkeley. And she came back at me really hard. And I'm like, it was just a line. It was just like a throwaway line. Do you think that she heard that from somebody else or is she like a loyal 710 listener like is she going to be at the mandy's do you think big, big lakers fan <laughs> big dodgers fan yeah she's, she's a p1 oh yeah she absolutely is uh i should mention sue kalinsky she's dealing with some personal stuff and that's why she's not doing the show today she'll be back on uh the next show which is with clark Gregg, who is really good actors got a series called florida man and of course uh, part of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He, uh, my all-time favorite drama is The Shield. Oh and yeah, he, he had a role on The Shield as a serial killer whose wife had no idea he was doing this stuff. He's chilling in it. He's fan. That was actually the first thing I really got to know him from. 
He's fantastic. And I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that before we get to, uh, to Clark. Uh, but I appreciate you doing this. Appreciate you filling yeah. in. Um, and, and let's bring our guest in. Uh, he is starred opposite Michael J. Fox and Frighteners in Jodie Foster's sci-fi epic Contact with Will Smith in Enemy of the State and in the cult classic, as we talked about, Starship Troopers. Recent projects include Mr. Robot, Stranger Things, Ray Donovan, and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. His new movie is Chaos on the Farm. It is currently on Lifetime. Jake Busey joins us. Hey, Jake, thanks a lot for doing this, man. Absolutely. So definitely we'll talk about Chaos on the Farm, uh, which is the uh, new movie on Lifetime. But I, I want to get to, you've described yourself as kind of a showbiz army brat kind of guy, following from movie set to movie set uh, with your dad. Was was that fun growing up, challenging? How does that shape your, your view of the world? Yeah, uh, it was a great way to grow up. It, it really was. Um, I'm very fortunate that I got to grow up that way. And, um, and, uh, you know, it was very unpredictable. In fact, um, there was one time when I went in, I was in my early twenties and I went into a United States post office and I saw it said, um, job opportunities here, um, you know, join up and be a United States postal worker. And it had a big chart on the wall of what you would earn what your starting starting earnings would be and then the chart went all the way through until your your final retirement year of of what you would be getting paid and of course it increased with every year to adjust for inflation and a little pay raise or what have you and i i had a an anxiety attack just looking at that because the thought of knowing what my future would be as secure as that might be was just deathly frightening to me. So, uh, I, I had to leave. <laughs> the thing was growing up the way I did, everything was so unpredictable that that became a more comfortable existence for me because I never knew where I was going to be or where we were going, which meant that some real fun stuff, you know, my, my, my career has, and my life has wound up kind of being like, your experience at a craps table in Vegas, you know, it's, um, sometimes you roll the dice and, and it's really fantastic, but most of the time it, it's pretty difficult to deal with because you're, you know, um, scrimping and scraping and saving and scrapping and you broke a lot of the time, but then every now and then you're working, it's very exciting and you get to go to big events and, uh, People get excited about the, the projects, uh, you know, the entertainment industry and movies and all that as a whole are, are changing, which is, that's a whole other topic. But for a while there, it, it's been, it's been great with the way the film industry worked with all of the, the hubbub that would go along. But, but the process of working in a film, um, after having done a, a couple of military films, one that is actually, uh, quite well known albeit fighting bugs in space um it was a military film that we really we got a lot of military training from captain dale die we did boot camp we really got to have the experience of being in the military and that's where i was able to draw the parallel of working on a film set being similar to the military it's a lot of a lot of sitting around and waiting and then and then something extremely exciting happens um 
And that, that happens not only on the film set, but uh, in, in the rest of your life around it as well. Um, so I kind of, I like that unpredictability of it. And uh, I think the reason is because every now and then you might draw a winning lottery ticket. And it's, I think that's what keeps you going. Yeah, we actually were talking about, I, I, I'm assuming the Fighting Bugs movie you're referring to is Starship Troopers. Uh, apologies if it's a different one. Yeah, you but, only uh, did one <laughs> Fighting Bugs movie, right? But we, we were actually talking about that movie because we were talking about Verhoeven in general and about like, he's had such an unusual career. And, and that movie is a, like an interesting blend of elements that are kind of campy and over the top, but there's also like, I think a statement being made about authoritarianism and like it's it's a very unusual movie did, did you recognize while you were doing it like wow this is actually pretty different than just a standard sci-fi or an action movie mm, no yeah that was not something i was young we were all young and and i can only speak for myself i've you know fairly uh blind to the notion of what the story was really about. In fact, when I first read the script uh, at the point of like, you know, pre-audition, when I was just checking it out, um, I really didn't understand what I was reading. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was pre-internet. And so those in the movie, there's these internet pages that pop up and say, you know, would you like to know more? And, all this, you know, government propaganda stuff, you know, join FedNet, become a citizen and get the right to vote if you serve. And um, I didn't get that. I didn't because we didn't have web pages. We didn't have. Uh, so when they described it in the script, I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and then I saw the movie and it all made sense. And then but I still didn't understand that it was a film that was about cap or communism versus fascism. And, um, and even, you know, Paul Verhoeven, he was very much ahead of his time while yet at the same time being behind his time, because really like he was, that movie was so powerful for him because he grew up in the Netherlands in post world war two. I mean, like, not even yeah. necessarily post, but like in the rubble. Yeah. You know? um, and because I think he was born probably, I'd say 1946, 1947. So like, yeah, he was a kid in Europe where all the crap happened. And so that was very close and personal for him, the whole communist versus fascist thing. You know, it's Russia and Germany, basically. And the ideals that come along with it, the bugs being the communists and the humans being the fascists. And it's a heck of a statement with the movie. And it's funny because it wasn't until like the 20-year reunion that a couple of critics figured it out. And they figured out what the movie was about. And they suddenly the... uh the overall view of that movie was it changed from being, Oh, that's a silly campy Beverly Hills, 90210 in space movie to wow. This movie is genius. Um, and that's, that's a testament to Paul and his genius. And, uh, and I asked him, you know, and he told me that. And I, I just, I was like, well, that I thought to myself, that's cool. That's great. We were so far away culturally from where we've, gotten to now which is in kind of a post big brother 
society. Um, so we're already, I mean, we're the, the people are talking about, oh, that book 1984, and it's like, yeah, 1984 happened, you know, 40 years ago or something, and and um, and yeah, we're 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 now we're ahead of that, you know, we've got the. I remember reading that book as a kid. And now, so Starship Troopers is really poignant in, and like in that book, like 84, like remember, like I didn't like that movie, but the book I loved. And like remember the, the talk about the telly screens mm -hmm. on the wall. And, yep. they, and not only could he uh, watch it, which was a constant propaganda, but they could see him and make sure he was not getting out of line. And the funny thing is, I just saw recently that. These all these big flat screen TVs, they actually do have a camera built into them. So, woo, go figure. <laughs> um, it's 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 a crazy world, man. It's a crazy world. So, um, I'm I'm real happy that I got to be a part of this uh, this uh, chaos on the farm show. You know, originally it was just the farm, which I thought was a beautifully simple title. Um, a friend of mine asked me to describe the film. What is this movie you're doing? I said, Oh, well, it's about well, let's see, there's this young couple and the girl inherits land from her grandmother and she needs to go meet an aunt that she doesn't know. And so then her boyfriend and I'm and I was struggling trying to describe what happens. I said, and then I wind up at the I'm at this farm where then she, and he says He's like, man, so, well, what's the genre? I said, well, I think it might be kind of a thriller, kind of tension, but there's a romance in it and a little, and, and he goes, well, what's the name of it? And I said, The Farm. And he goes, oh, oh, I get it. I get it. That's all you had to say was The Farm. Yeah, it's a scary movie, and uh, you got the young couple that goes out, and then they, <laughs> I thought, boy, I felt like an idiot. Yeah, The Farm, it said it all. It's But Chaos on the Farm really really uh, drives the point home. The thing I love about uh, that movie is the fact that, uh, you know, you're, you're the bad guy. You're a bad guy. Um, it, you typically play kind of a, a badass, right, in, in virtually everything I can think of. Um, and yet you're worried about uh, sleeping together and uh, saying grace. And there's this whole, like, layer of this guy who's putting on What's really a, a performance for these two kids that wind up at the farm? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I do. That's what we did. Yeah, that was the intent. Is he was uh, he he was he was playing a character. He knew what he had to get was uh, very uh, a, a very high stakes payoff, uh, and was willing to do anything uh, to get it. And if that meant pretending to be something he wasn't and you know he was all about it and um so you know derek the director derek and i you know we talked about it at, at length and that was the original intent was in fact for there to be two characters really you, you know you've got the uh the, the the character brandon and then you've got the character who uh who like who I go by in the movie? Who I'll be, mm -hmm. but I'll probably I'm, I don't know. I might have I might be credited as both names because of that. So um, both character names. But it was it was great. It was fun to play. It was fun to play the uh, 
that, that dichotomy, that balance to know that you're being someone who's being someone else, you know, it added a little layer of fun to it. Not a fun movie to watch if you're somebody living with your significant other pre-marriage and a vegetarian. You're going to feel very alienated in this film. <laughs> um, I have not seen the movie yet, so um, I know the story from the script. So I, I'm guessing that it's very, uh, very religiously uh, sort of. You know, well, that that, that part stayed. <laughs> I, I saw that part. <laughs> so it, but I mean, the, the character you're talking about, the, the performative element of the persona this guy's putting on, he's very judgmental. He's frankly very unsettling. Like, yeah, I, he's I, trying I, to be he's trying to be that, you know, that's that's what he thinks of those people. And so he's trying to portray, he's trying to be that guy. He's trying to be one of those guys that he doesn't, he doesn't like, you know? Yeah. So he kind of revels in that, of even taking it, you know, because you're mocking, you're mocking an existence. He's mocking a whole culture of people. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> even the, even the way you eat a steak in that, it, it, it's very weaponized. Like you're using right. it as an intimidation factor. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we had these rather large sharp knives and, um, I'll tell you, my dog was happiest about the steak eating. <laughs> <laughs> so an interesting thing that you forget about is that, uh, you, you know, you do, you, you do the, the takes over and over and over again. Right. Well, each take, the way that Derek was shooting it was not in a stake saving mentality. So we had like 40 <laughs> prime ribs or something. Nice. Incredible. Yeah. So every single take was a brand new medium rare filet mignon, you know, or New York, whatever it was so good. Like <laughs> they got someone who knew how to cook a steak. And um, so every take you would get a, brand new bite of a nice juicy hot steak it was really it was great but apparently it drove them nuts in the uh in the editing room because you're just sitting there for i can only imagine they were just sitting there for hours watching people just <laughs> you'd have to have lunch with you while you're watching this you know because uh make you hungry It'd make you hungry to watch people sometimes i think of a steak in my mouth literally does like water oh mine does mine does i, I love like a good steak rule yeah, yeah yeah let me i want to go back let's go back a little bit so i years ago andy and i both work for espn andy's got other jobs too um and there was a point where i went to new york and i was going to be like the biggest thing in the world and it didn't go well and and i flopped right it didn't, it didn't work for whatever reason. Sorry to hear that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now, now I want to bring this up because you right after Starship Troopers did a couple of big studio movies and they didn't yeah. go the way that you hoped. And you ended up kind of taking a hiatus from the business. What, what was that like? Well, that's a, it's, it's a forced hiatus. I, it wasn't a plan. Um, it, uh, I think, you know, you, you, um, as as an actor, you, so much of the film is not in your hands, yet you take the blame. So 
uh, I think. I mean, I don't know. I I, I don't mean to blame other people uh, at all, but there's there's certainly and nobody ever directly told me, uh, hey, you really messed that up. But I did notice that I you know I did a couple of big studio films and then and they didn't do well and then I stopped getting you know I stopped getting hired. So I I don't know if it's coincidence or if it, if it was truly if, because people didn't like me. I always paid attention to the testing. Like you'd hear, you know, the studio would say, yeah, we're, we're showing it to test audiences. Um, and I, I never heard bad word. Like I always heard like, yeah, your character's testing great. They're loving what you did. So I've, I have always heard that, which is nice. So that, that put my mind at ease some, you know, with, but especially with movies that were big studio films that then failed. And then I felt responsible on a certain level only because I wasn't continuing to to, to work so yeah it's been yeah like i think i had my 15 minutes really i think my 15 minutes was like the late 90s and now ho hopefully i can just continue and i don't even mean to belittle that hopefully i can continue to work as an actor right now it's unfortunately it's kind of more of a hobby um i would like to be working <clears throat> much more than i am but um you know, things just, things are the way they are. Uh, and I, it's some, you know, there's some things you just don't have control over. So, by the way, you said you don't want to blame other people. I totally blame everybody else for what happened in New York. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're way more mature than I am. Speaking of that, <laughs> of that period, Jake, I wanted to ask you, um, I, you may not be aware of this, but it's the 25th anniversary of Enemy of the State. A, a movie oh, is that, it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A movie I absolutely love. Tony Scott film with Will Smith oh. and Gene Hackman. And you, and one of the things I, I've found interesting in the moment when the movie came out was like you, uh, Jamie Kennedy, Barry Pepper, Jack Black, Scott Kahn, Seth Green, you're all a bunch of young actors. You're playing these NSA underlings and you guys are all kind of breaking out at the same time. Like is this group of young actors are all sort of getting recognition you know, this this happened the same year, actually, with Saving Private Ryan and some of those guys. Like, it's happened with Days Confused, School Ties. What is that like when you're working with a bunch of guys that I assume you go out for a lot of the same roles? Like, is there a camaraderie? Is there a rivalry? A little bit of both? Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, definitely. And I, I don't know about a, a rivalry so much um, because every, as far as actors go, you know, you're, everybody has such a different look and vibe so you, you can't really compete and you know this goes back to the whole thing of like how can you win a best actor or an oscar or something because like the five people nominated they played completely different characters and they looked completely different so how are they it's apples and oranges right so but but we starting out together that was fun that was great there was an energy to it there was an excitement we were all somewhere in our early to mid twenties, uh, in, in, within that area, I think I was like 26, something like that. Mm. Um, and you know, like, well, Jack Black and I went to high school together and I had known Seth Green and, um, I, I had, I, uh, let's see, I, I met Barry and Jamie on those roles on that. And, um, Remain friends with Jamie. Um, 
but yeah, it is interesting to look back at that and see all those guys are now like millionaires and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm wishing I could get a job. Um, they all did very well. They all did very well. And, um, I'm, I'm happy for them. And, um, yeah, that was, that was one of the most rewarding and difficult and exciting films I ever worked on. That was certainly the biggest budget film. And they, they, I'm sure they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on that. I mean, just with the, yeah, just with the, I mean, we had a scene where a building blows up. That's Gene Hackman's like his compound. And so they had like 20 cameras rolling and this back before GoPros and iPhones and all this. I mean, it was a big deal to have a camera or two or three. And we were shooting a lot of times with like 13 cameras. Well, on this particular day, it was a lot more than that. And, and we had three helicopters in the sky, a coordinated train, like a cargo train that was a mile long, um, which takes a long time to start and stop. Um, and then a bunch of stunt guys in these trucks uh, and cars. And so when they yelled action, there was a building demolitionist set with the button ready to blow the building up. All the stunt guys in all their trucks ready to go. Helicopters above. The train is around the corner. When the train gets up to speed and it is, is coming around the big bend like this, yeah. right as it's perfect in frame, they yell action. The guy hits the button. The building blows up. The cars come out. And it was, I mean, Barry Pepper was up on a billboard. He climbed up onto like the scaffolding of a billboard to film it with his video camera. I was on top of a car filming it with mine. Um, it was a really exciting big day. And that movie, there was always like, there was always two helicopters in the sky above us. Wherever we were outside, there was two helicopters. One was filming us and one was filming. Uh, so one was like the NSA helicopter that's chasing mm -hmm. Will Smith and the other was the camera ship. And then sometimes there was three. It, a lot of money spent on that movie. It was yeah. nice. So you got a uh, landed a big role in Stranger Things on uh, on Netflix, which is yeah, yeah, uh, it, it, kind of the biggest show in the world, and millions and millions of people watch. Were you a fan of Stranger Things before you actually went in audition, got that part? Yeah, yeah, I, I was a big fan of the show. Um, the, though it just so happens that the kids in that show are the exact age that I was or am during those years. So yeah. the show starts out in 1983 and they're 12 and seventh grade. And that was, that was me. That was my jam. And I watched the show and I thought, Oh, that's a great show. And I loved it. And it had so many tones of like, it, I mean, it was like they took little pieces from all the movies that I grew up watching and kind of reconfigured them and put them all into one show. Um, from the John Carpenter stuff to the Spielberg stuff to the, all it. And, um, and it was really great. And then somebody said to me, I was in a conversation with someone about it and, and they said, yeah, it is great. And what a great job they did, you know, with the, the period stuff, you know, being that it's a period piece. And I had to stop and think. I was, I was like, oh, wait a minute. 
oh yeah, it's a period piece. Because for me, when I was 12, that's what the world looked like. So I, I didn't realize that they, oh yeah, the phones, we don't, nowadays we don't have phones like that. Um, and cars and the clothes and all that. And so, um, that was exciting, but I loved the show. I did. And I was, I was so excited to, uh, to, to be a part of it. It was great. It was really amazing. It's, it's funny. My daughter is 12 and she loves the show and she's always yeah. now she's become this self-appointed expert on the eighties now because she watches oh, stranger right. things and she'll always be now telling me what life was like for a teenager in the eighties, <laughs> me who actually was a teenager. And I'm like, really tell me more. <laughs> what, what what else happened in the 80s? She's like, you know, the, the diners were great in the 80s. They were really, really good. <laughs> well, there was a few, and they were just trying to look like the 1950s diners for mm -hmm. baby boomers. <laughs> it, it's it's really it, it's fun. It's fun though. I mean, you you mentioned taking uh your your daughter to school, and yeah. like it, it it's fun when you see your kids start to pick up on stuff from your youth. And like now, like, I, I don't know about your daughter, but like they, my daughter gets it all through TikTok and like other social media apps. Like she learns about music from our era purely through osmosis, but it, it's, it, it's wow. got staying power. I can tell you based on her. Yeah. Yeah. It's a trip. It's a trip. Um, it's, I'm at such a conflict being a parent uh, with the, social media and the internet and all that stuff. Cause on one hand, I really feel like it's, uh, destroyed our culture and our interactions with each other. And a lot of kids have psychological problems and difficulties because they're spending too much time on it. Um, and then you've, you've got all these unrealistic filters. And so young girls are getting like this body dysmorphia problems where they're looking at these gorgeous models. That aren't even really that gorgeous in person, but they got these filters that they put on. Yeah. And then you, so now all these young girls are thinking, I got to look like that. And if I don't, I'm a loser. And so that to me is, it's difficult. And that being that I'm a dad with a 10 year old girl, um, I kind of get down on myself, uh, for letting her go there and watch that stuff. But then, you know, I heard I've, now they're, they're talking. There's a lot of talk in the, in the zeitgeist right now about like, a TikTok ban, right. which is a trip. Uh, How do you feel about a TikTok ban? I don't know. I mean, I think there is certainly validity to the whole, like, you know, spyware thing and all that. And, and it's, you know, the, the company is a China based company and they're, they're gathering all of our information and all that. But at the same time, like, every other app is yes. just as guilty. Yeah. Uh, and they're all, I mean, there was a whole shenanigan thing when WhatsApp had to, you know, they, they, they had to, um, they redid their privacy agreement at a very unfortunate time. It just so happened that all eyes were on them and that the Commonwealth was talking about privacy issues when they did it. And then so suddenly, WhatsApp became the focus of all this, like, you know, WhatsApp steals all your information and WhatsApp shares all your information. It's like, well, yeah, but so does, so do all of them. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, 
when I was young, and I especially because my dad was a famous person, and you worried about like, I mean, there was a whole thing where President Reagan gets shot because the guy's got a crush on Jodie Foster. And so there's weirdos in the world. So we kind of like held privacy to a high regard. You don't want people knowing what you're doing. And then meanwhile, you look at someone who's 25 and they're, they're telling the world where they are and where they go and what they do every, they feel compelled to on yeah. their phone every 10 minutes. So it's a totally different awareness to what we, where we were at in the eighties, you know, with our privacy, like you didn't, you, you wanted to skirt through the world and not have anyone know what you're up to, man. And, uh, now it's, it's just the polar opposite. And, um, is it good or is it bad? I don't know. I don't know because we're living in a world where, um, that seems to be the currency. And then that now they're going to make digital currency. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's easy to get neurotic. Like I've got this little piece of tape that I put over the camera on my computer. I have no idea if that does anything or not. I just heard it's supposed to help, but but it is easy to get neurotic about all of it. I I think that's justifiable when you look at all the stuff Snowden said that they do. And after having worked on enemy of the state, Mm. I got all this inside information from the guys that, well, our technical guy was, he had run the NSA for years and he was retired. And I said to him, how are you giving us all this secret information? And we're going to put it in a movie and everyone's going to see what you guys are capable of and the surveillance and, and the weapons and all that stuff. And he goes, oh, that's all six year old technology yeah. and in the tech world six years is like a century and i was like oh so you mean you can do that much more now hmm. <gasps> and then that hit me i was like and this is 97 so since 97 i've known like yeah they this is, we don't have any privacy no. i mean it's just here we are and uh so what do i do with my daughter I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think that endless hours on the, on the iPad is good. And, um, it's, you know, there's gotta be some kind of cap yeah. for mental health, you know, but I don't think we're getting away from it. It'd be kind of like in the 1950s. If you said, Hey, you can't drive a car, these car things. These car things have been dangerous. They've only been around 20 years and they're, they're, uh, it's not a good track record. You couldn't do that because everybody drives cars, you know, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, it's tough to be a parent right now, but I'm enjoying it. So doing the yeah. best I can. So, uh, last thing for you, you, you did a, uh, you chased around a lot of great music, uh, over the years, uh, whether it's, Willie Nelson or Leon Russell or Fleetwood Mac. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. what's, what's your music life like now? I'm, I've always just been a, like a hard rock dude. You know, I like, um, uh, you know, I, I, I just like heavy, hard alternative. Like I'm, I'm kind of still listening to shit that's old, like 90s you know, early 2000s, sometime around 2005, 2006, I just kind of 
I don't know. I stopped staying up with the current music. I didn't, there was a, just, there's not a lot of new bands that really, that really sing to me, that really stick out. And, and, uh, I don't know. So I, if we looked at like a playlist, old. if we looked at a playlist of yours, what, what bands would be on there? Oh my God. Well, you would be looking at <laughs> embarrassingly, you would be looking at, you know, the Dave Grohl bands. Yeah. You'd be looking at, uh, you'd be looking at Rage Against the Machine and you, you would see, uh, like everything from, uh, you know, and I love, I love Bjork and Cheryl Crow on the girls' side and, and Gwen Stefani, I think is great. But I love, like you said, Willie Nelson. I love, uh, like Steve Earle, but I'm also like a big fan of pop. I love, you know, I love some of the sillier stuff. I love the Beastie Boys. I love Beck. I love those crazy white guy rappers that are <laughs> wacky. Um, I expected way more embarrassing. I got to be honest. This is not that embarrassing a playlist, Jake. Oh, okay. I love Soundgarden and Tool. And like the bands that I play drums in are kind of more like that heavy kind of vibe. I'm in a band now called 27 Miles. And, uh, I just recently joined and it's guys that I grew up with. They put out a record in 2006 and we're playing some of those songs and writing some new songs. Um, but, but yeah, I like, but then I, you know, we'll forever and always be like a, a Led Zeppelin guy, like, like John Bond's my hero. And, and that's, you know, I've always loved their music. What a great interpretation of American blues. Yeah, uh, music, you know, spun through the, the well, lens of you're young a English guys. Yeah, you're a drummer, correct? Yes, sir. So, I mean, Bonham makes sense as a hero. I mean, he he yeah. truly is one of the all time great, creative, unusual drummers. It was amazing, mind blowing, mind blowingly amazing. The creativity and stuff that he, the grooves that he came up with, um, just fascinated me. Like where like i can play it all but i could never come up with any of that hmm. stuff and that's the genius that's where you go holy cow you know like how did you come up with this freaking groove that's so wild but it, you know it mirrors the guitar and the vocals and well, i i just um, i just learned that that so, song um on zeppelin four four sticks that it got yeah. that name because he was playing with two sticks in each hand Oh, I didn't know so that, that makes sense. Yeah. So he had like two in each hand, like in going on the tom. So he's one. Yeah, that makes sense. But it, it explains wow. that there's like a, yeah. there's a richness to the sound of the drumming in there that you right. wonder like, okay, was it overlaid? Was it anything like that? And it, it's like, I'm guessing it's because he had two sticks in each hand that creates That's an unusual right. sound. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's cool to know. Thanks for the bit of trivia on that. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, this has been great, man. This has been great. Uh, we really appreciate you doing it. Uh, the movie is called Chaos on the Farm. It is on Lifetime. Yeah. It is on demand. Jake Busey, great great meeting you and, and, and great talking to you, man. Thank you, guys. Great to meet you, too. Have a wonderful day. There you have it. There is uh, Jake Busey. I'm glad we got some Starship Troopers in there. Got some music in there. Yeah. The uh, the the Zeppelin note was a great note at the end of the thing. 
I, I just learned it. I, I grew up playing drums too. So I'm, I've always really been into drummers. He's correct. Bonham's incredible. But I just recently learned that fact about four sticks. I was like, wow, that actually makes a lot of sense. If for no other reason that I was wondering, why is this song called four sticks? Because they never say that lyric. Yeah, I wonder if, and we didn't get to this. You and I are both Nepo babies. Um, I wonder. <laughs> yes, big time. <laughs> I wonder. My dad was salesman for Eastman Kodak. He gave me a leg up into the broadcast business. Not a lot of people know this. My father's Jack Nicholson. <laughs> there you go. But I wonder if that's a net plus or a net minus when you get down to it. I've always thought that it's a net plus in terms of it's so hard to get in the door to meet the right people who can help you, you know, like there's no way to think of it as a net negative in terms of just getting started. Right. I think once you're in though, it starts becoming for the most part, like anybody else in Hollywood, you, you gotta earn it. Like, yeah. You, you and you gotta to deliver show. the goods at the, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we both know O'Shea Jackson Jr. pretty well. And O'Shea will be the first person to admit being Ice Cube's son helped a lot. You know, his, his first starring role was playing Ice Cube. Yeah. But, right. You know, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> but at the same time, though, I mean, like O'Shea has a hell of a work ethic. Oh, yeah. He really does. And he's really good. Yep. O'Shea's really good. He's genuinely good at this. I always think of that story. There's a story that goes around that when Tori Spelling auditioned for <laughs> I know this <laughs> Beverly Hills 90210 that she claims she went in without anybody in casting knowing mm. she was Aaron Spelling's daughter so she got the rule uh, got the role fair and square now I I think she's a brilliant actress um I don't know that that's necessarily true that the casting people <laughs> were unawares about her dad. Yeah, I'm sure they're all going like, wow, this this young girl looks an awful lot like Aaron Spelling. <laughs> she looks an awful lot like the girl that was on the stage with Aaron Spelling during this girl, uh, another girl's bat mitzvah. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. Aaron Spelling's she looks an awful lot like Aaron Spelling's daughter, but I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Yeah, just a coincidence. <laughs> um, well, listen, Andy, this has been great. Uh, yeah, filling awesome, in man. for Sue. You're going to be our go-to when, when Sue can't make it. Please have me. All right. Uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or get it at stevemason.com. Sue will be back next show. Clark Gregg is going to join us. Great actor. That's coming up. Uh, thanks to Andy, and we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Culture Pop Podcast.